Hello, I'm Lou Corner, author of We Own the Sky. And I'm Sam Eads, editor at Trapeze Books. So thanks for joining us today. Uh, Luke and I are going to have a discussion about his brilliant book, uh, We Own the Sky. So Luke, why don't you kick us off? Um, for those of us who haven't read it, tell us a little bit about what it's about. Uh, we Own the Sky is a love story. Um, it's about an ordinary family living in London, uh, Rob, Anna and their little boy Jack. And it's about what happens when their life changes in an instant and how this affects the relationship between the family and it asks the ultimate question that no parent should ever have to ask is how far you would go to save your own child. And talk to us a little bit about the inspiration behind the story. Was it based on personal experience? In some ways, yeah. I, I um, So my father died in 2012 and um, not long after he died um, I got cancer myself and I started writing the book when I was doing chemotherapy and I felt um, that you know the theme running through the book is one of grief and I felt because I was given you know a sort of 30% chance I might die over five years I, I felt a preemptive grief um, for my family, um, for my kids, for my wife. And also I wanted to, thinking I might die, I wanted to leave some kind of legacy um, by writing a book, something that, you know, my kids could one day, you know, read and look back on. So, yeah, that was the inspiration for writing. You know, you talk about it being a book about grief, but also it's a it's a book about love. And one of the things that readers have been commenting on is the hope that's in the book. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it's. I think the ultimate message of the book is, however bad things can be, you know, love and hope will always survive, um, and families can go through the worst possible imaginable things, but they can come back from it in some way. And it's how relationships fall apart and then come back together again. You talked. So you talked about your story of how you came to write it, which is you know really unusual and. Um, and really inspiring how did you go from um, manuscript and a draw to actually being published um, well I submitted it first in uh, 2015 um, to several agents and a few liked it a few liked it more and wanted me to revise and resubmit it and one of those agents was Juliet Mushens um, and we had a long conversation about what she thought her vision was for the book which I really liked, and then I spent another year doing a huge rework of the book and then submitted it to Juliet, and she she liked it and agreed to represent it. So, And it's sold all over the world, so how many countries has it's, it sold it, in? Yeah, it's sold in uh, 30, 30 countries across the world, which for a debut author is just, for me, really exciting. At the moment, just seeing all the, all the covers... Um, you know, in the different territories is incredibly exciting for a, for a debut. So as you said, it's sold um, in 30 countries around the world and, and, you know, already there's been an amazing reaction. Lots of authors have given you great quotes and you're getting some brilliant reviews in the press, but also from readers. And what a lot of them are saying is, well, Luke, you've made them cry. How does that make you feel? <laughs> we don't, I don't think you ever write to um, try and make people cry so it's always it's always uh you're sort of sorry not sorry when someone says that a little bit 
Um, but you're, you're happy that they had an emotional connection to the book, and that's and that's really nice. And did you cry when you were writing it? Yeah, in 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 some in some parts, like some parts writing about Jack, the little boy, I found quite difficult because I have a son the same age. Yeah, so some of those parts, but then after a while, you read it so many times that you're not sort of sitting there and like, oh yeah, that was brilliant, you know, um, <laughs> that was a yeah, you know, I'm crying again because the words are so brilliant. See, it's not like it's not like that, no. But at, at first, there were some scenes that I did find quite difficult. Yeah. And what were your kind of who, uh, who were your literary influences? What kind of writers inspired you? Um, I do love Raymond Carver. Um, it's probably my favourite author of all time because I like writers with very sparse prose and I think he's an uh, absolute master um, I do love Ishiguro as well um, for the sort of similar reasons I also, I love Judy Bloom, and oh. Judy Bloom was a huge influence on me I always nick my sister's books and read them <laughs> when, I was, when I was young Any favourites there with Judy? Um, uh then again, maybe I won't. I oh, quite okay. liked some of the ones that focus more on. I did like Blubber. I read Blubber. Oh, um, I like yeah. Tiger Eyes. Um, <laughs> all of them really. Forever. That was the naughty one. Yeah. Um, which I remember Ralph. reading. Ralph, indeed. <laughs> I remember reading in the boys' toilets. <laughs> and um, yeah, and some favourite authors: Judy Bloom. Who else do I like? I've gone blank. I've gone like it when people say, what music do you like? Oh, no. And then you're sort of like, the, the Beatles? Whilst we're on the subject of kind of literary influences, Jill Mansell gave you an amazing quote where uh, she compared you to David Nichols. Is he, is he someone that inspires you? Yeah, well, that that was, um, yes, absolutely. And that was really flattering because he's, he's sort of one of my heroes I you know love Nick Hornby as well but but David Nichols especially because I think he he writes with, with such humor and such emotion brilliant storyteller mm. um and so yeah I've read Start for 10 and Us and and One Day and and yeah I, I just I just love him I think he's brilliant and I wish he would write more books let's talk about the title which is quite an unusual title. Uh, where did it come from, and what does it mean in the story? Without giving too much away, well, it does. It is quite significant in the story, and you do find out at the end what it means. So I don't want to give that no spoilers, away. But... No spoilers. But it, um, it, it, it came when I was writing a scene because the, the in the book um, panoramic photography and and being on the cliffs and in looking out at the sky is a very big theme in the book. Um, and it was just one of those phrases that popped into my head. And I remember when it did, and then I was frantically Googling to see, like, were there other, any other books called, called this? Um, so yeah, so it just sort of came into my head one day. And have your publishers around the world taken that title? There's some have, some haven't. Like in Dutch, it's called Only For You, I think. Mm. Um, in Czech, it's called. Um, it's it's direct translation. We own the sky, so quite a few of them have mm. taken it directly because I, you know, I suppose it's a relatively easy phrase mm. to translate. So, 
Um, and sort of coming back to character, which is something that you're so brilliant at, um, do you want to just talk us through those main characters? Who, you know, who, who are we going to meet in the in the story? Um, well, the main character and narrator is Rob, and Rob is a self-made millionaire, a tech whiz, who his quality is he thinks he can solve any problem. There's a level of arrogance there. He comes from quite... You know, working, he's working class, comes from a council estate. Um, and Anna is the daughter of missionaries and is quite, um, not wealthy, but sort of has always gone to a scholarship girl at well to do schools. And she, in her approach to life, is a little bit more realistic and perhaps he sees her of being, having certain middle class trappings, um, of accepting society and everything. And, and, and the way, um, those characters very much and their personalities very much affect how they respond when their son becomes ill. And how easy did you find it to get into the, the character and the sort of voice of a, of a woman and a small child? Because you are neither. <laughs> um, well, the, the, the thing that I heard someone, I can't remember who once said about writing women is, and it was about men writing women was don't try to write a woman, try to write a human being, which I think is a great bit mm. of advice for men because I think men too often think they have to give female characters. They try to make them female by having them talking about periods or menopause <laughs> or things that are specifically female mm. and I think sometimes that instead of giving them authenticity it actually ends up giving them the opposite mm. um and I don't think you I mean I just I just read the um the woman in the window which mm. I loved and so you know male author doing a you know female female narrator and, and I thought from a man's perspective I don't know if you would agree but I thought he did it very well yeah I thought it was um, brilliantly done so so I, th I think I think a, a safer way to do it is to sort of just just write a person. Um, yeah, I think it's really so. good advice. And have you? You're you're a journalist. Um, so have you always wanted to write? Yeah, I've always wanted to write fiction, and I wrote my first novel when I was 23, and you know got lots of rejections from agents, and then had been over the years working on various projects that didn't really go anywhere, um, didn't submit them or anything. And then, you know, after I got cancer, it very much sharpened my life goals and I had a real sense that, well, I've got, to, I've really got to do this now. So. So let's talk about the, um, editing process. Um, so we were at an event last night and you talked about how many drafts you'd done and I was quite surprised. So do you want to talk us through that? Well, I think in total I did about 10 drafts, a few sort of perhaps five not on my own before mm. submission and then sort of another one and a half with Juliet mm. and then with you sort of two more or something or one more can't and remember how did you find that process is it something you enjoyed 
Uh, well, I enjoy uh, yeah, I, I suppose I don't I mean I enjoy writing and I enjoyed mm-hmm. making the book better. And I felt one of the good things about being a journalist is that you get used to being edited mm-hmm. straight from the beginning. So you, you, you're much less precious about your writing mm-hmm. and that's a, a good thing. And you're used to people tearing your copy apart and you're used to just the process of having people touch your copy. Um, so for me, I didn't find I've been doing that all my career. So I found that quite actually quite easy and normal. Um, and I did find the editorial process, you know, with Juliet, um, Juliet Mushins, my agent, she, she really had a vision for the book and I really respected her vision from the beginning before submission. So I believe, I believed her, um, and I was willing to defer to her on things. And mostly we felt the same about something. But when she said to me, Oh, I think you should amp up this character or something. Mm-hmm. I agreed to do it, even though it might have not been my instinct to do that. Mm. And then, funnily enough, when you read reviews from people, she was very big on the father relationship, for example, Mm. in the book. And when I read reviews from people now, people are all saying, oh, I love the father character and things. Mm. And that that entirely came from her. Mm. Um, So that's very nice. And how much did the manuscript change? So from that first draft that you did to the book, you know, how is the story different? The first, the first draft was was just a very different story. It was about um, the father getting ill, not the little boy. Oh, wow! So that it was a it was an absolutely substantial mm. change, and the, the little boy had been ill, but it was all told in the past. So it was a really big mm. reworking, and I killed a lot of characters, <gasps> and you know did did. <laughs> um, so it was a big big rework. Yeah. Wow. Um, you talked about rejection. Um, can you? And, and I think it's something that a lot of people kind of struggle with. So, have you got any kind of tips and advice on kind of how do you handle rejection? Um, I just think all you can do is keep going and always think when you're when you're with agents and you're submitting and with editors. Just we all like different books. Everyone likes different books, and I can sit and talk about how I loved a book and you didn't. And I think you just have to remember when you're getting rejected, just because you get rejected, it mm. doesn't um, it doesn't mean that your book is bad. Mm. It just means your book might not be right for that person. Mm. And I think that and there was one um, there was one agent I submitted to um, Sam Copeland. And I know him. And he, yeah, in he he wrote me. I submitted to him, and he wrote me back very quickly. And he just said something like, um, "I think your writing is very nice and is a very high standard, and I think that you're of a you know good enough to be published." However, this book isn't just, it just isn't my kind of thing. It meant, you know, that was it. And then, but it was, and I wrote back and said, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I really did appreciate it because Mm. to me, I had a feeling then, and so it was a rejection and that Mm. wasn't good, but I had a feeling that I was in the ballpark. I was in the game. I was sort, I was good enough because as a writer, you have crippling doubt about Mm. whether you're going to be good enough. And I thought, and just that little, note from him mm. meant a huge amount to me um so yeah it's just little things like that for agents it was just it was lovely um and the the book is would make an absolutely amazing film so if there's any film and tv people listening to this you know what are you waiting for um you know lots of writers kind of imagine in their head 
um, you know, the big, the big screen adaptation. Is that something you thought about? And do you have anyone in mind for those characters? I didn't. Fantasy I mean, casting. I mean, yeah. I didn't. Um, my my mum, my mum did. Um, I think she wants the guy from Poldark to play Rob. Oh my God, he'd be incredible, Aidan Turner. Yeah, Aidan yeah. Turner. So she she's big on him. Yeah. I was thinking more <laughs> Danny Dyer for okay. Rob. Mm, okay. <laughs> It'd be quite a stretch for him, I think. But well, I don't know. Play, I, I, I think. don't know. Breakout role. Yeah, it could and, be. And and for um for Anna um sorry I'm forgetting the actress's name um who plays Lady Mary in Downton Abbey. Yes. I've forgotten her Because I think she's, she's really... Oh, yeah, she's quite... Um, she's got that quiet English yeah, reserve, reserve that, yeah. that Anna has, yeah. although she has as Lady Mary. Yeah. I don't know what she's like <laughs> in other roles. Um, but so, so, my, so I, I, I'm, I'm with my mum on, on Lady Mary. Poldark um, and Lady Mary. Poldark and Lady That'd Mary, basically. Um, and actually, someone we haven't talked about um, is Nev, who actually is a really important character in the book. Um and the kind of world that he comes from, um, and and obviously there's a lot of sort of surprises in his uh, in his journey. But do you want to talk to us a little bit about Nev and um, um, and and that community that he comes from? Yeah. So Nev is well. First, just to get into that, there's there's um, a clinic in the book which is offering very alternative and experimental cancer treatments and the clinic is based in Prague and that's based on an actual clinic in the United States and an actual doctor whose name I don't want to mention and Nev is someone who was based on a real character um, someone who I'm, I encountered in my cancer forums who basically did lots of very alternative cutting edge treatments, some of which are completely bogus, but some of which had some scientific belief. Mm. But he was very active about with about getting other people by because he he was a blogger and he told mm. his story and he got very many other people to do what he was doing. Mm. And a lot of people saw him as an absolute charlatan in the cancer community and other people didn't. So Nev is it's a little bit different in the story and mm. I don't want to give anything away. But Nev, Nev is, is this guy who, for whatever reasons, tries to pull people in to these alternative treatments. Mm. What I loved about Nev is he's, he's a very interesting character and he's very nuanced. Um, you know, he's not, he's not an out-and-out um, hero or villain. So the book has sold, if we haven't mentioned it already, all around the world, 30 countries, which is amazing um, and doesn't happen a lot with debut novels. Um what do you think it is about it? You know, if you could put your finger on it, um, what is it about this story that's connecting with so many readers? I, I think in some ways it's quite a simple story because it's just about a family, an ordinary family that's easily translatable. Um, and I think some of the issues about not just how far you would go to save your own child, but some of the issues about alternative medicine mm. these days. And I think some of the issues about... I mean, cancer treatment and medical treatment has changed over the years, so now it's a lot more in the hands of the patient. Before, there was a much simpler relationship between doctors and patients where doctors told you what to do, and now, because of the internet, people can research more their own. So when people do get very ill, they do turn to the internet and online communities, and I think that's something. I mean, there have been very some very highly, uh, some very prominent cases about, you know, in the UK with, you know, kids going abroad or trying to go abroad for medical treatment and things. 
Um, so I think it has a resonance because of it is quite a contemporary issue. Mm. And, you know, we're here today recording this interview for the um, audio edition. Do you listen to audiobooks and, and have you listened to the recording of William Scott? I listened to it with a bit of trepidation and it, it was so nice because it, it didn't, somehow it didn't feel like my words. Mm. Um, I, I felt like I was listening to it fresh mm. and I, I, I found it quite, I found it quite moving and I think mm. I even had a little cry when I listened to it to the first time and I've sort of, I've not wanted to go back to it um, partly just because I've been quite busy but also sort of just because I'm a bit worried about listening to it again um but but yeah so um so yeah but I hope I will go back to it so um tell us what you're writing next um I'm working on a book about a comedian a failing comedian who's also working as a part-time children's magician who goes blind um and it's about the effect that it has on his family and how he tries to rebuild his career up as a blind comedian and it's a story that for me, my father um, was born blind, so so I grew up with a blind father, and I've always wanted to write about blindness mm-hmm. because it's all it's had a huge emotional impact on me on, on my life, you know, having a blind father, and I think blindness is something that's given a little bit of short shrift. I think portrayals of blindness in books and films tend to fall into either something, either they tend to infantilise blind people, Mm -hmm. which is something blind people face every day, being Mm -hmm. treated like children and spoken down to. And the other way that blind people are portrayed um, is as these almost mystical creatures who Mm. can somehow... um, even though they can't see with their eyes, they somehow have powers to see yeah. in other ways, <laughs> and which is, you know, is is rubbish and is insulting to most blind people. Mm. And most blind people um, have kids and have jobs and live absolutely normal lives. Mm. And I wanted to portray something that, that has the trauma of someone going blind, but also how people adapt and how they're resilient and how they carry on and deal with their disability. So... That's the that's the new book, the work in progress. And so the main character there is a failed comedian. Does that mean have we got some jokes in this one? Luke? It's it's a bit it's a bit <laughs> it's a bit funnier because I thought the last one was all about grief and death. So I was going to like you know add in a few jokes in this one. So it, it is a bit. I, well, I hope it's you never know, do you? But I, I hope it's funnier. It's more light hearted, definitely. Brilliant. Um, well, that feels like a good moment to end on. So, Luke, thank you so much for coming into the studio um, to talk to us about We in the Sky. Thanks so much. Luke Olnert's debut novel, We in the Sky, is available to buy now in ebook, audio, and paperback. She read up a storm before she left. In her favourite hard backed chair, in bed, propped up on a mound of pillows. The books spilled over from the bedside table, piling up on the floor. She preferred foreign detective novels, and she ploughed through them, her lips chastely pursed, her face rigid, unmoving. Sometimes I would wake in the night and see the lamp was still on. Anna, a harsh silhouette, sat with a straight back just how she was always taught. She did not acknowledge that I had woken, even though I turned towards her, but stared down into her book, flicking through the pages as if she was cramming for a test. 
At first, it was just the usual suspects from Scandinavia, Henning Mankel, Stieg Larsson, but then she moved on. German noir from the 1940s, a Thai series set in 1960s Phuket. The covers were familiar at first, recognisable fonts and designs from major publishers, but soon they became more esoteric, with foreign typesetting and different bindings. And then, one day, she was gone. I don't know where those books are now. I have looked for them since, to see if a few of them have snuck onto my shelves, but I never found any. I imagine she took them all with her, packed them up in one of her colour-coded bin bags. The days after she left are a haze, a memory of anaesthetic, drawn curtains and neat vodka, an unsettling quietness, like the birds going silent before an eclipse. I remember sitting in the lounge and staring at a crystal tumbler and wondering whether fingers of vodka were horizontal or vertical. There was a draught that blew through the house, under the doors, through the cracks in the walls. I think I knew where it was coming from, but I couldn't go there. I couldn't go upstairs, because it wasn't our house anymore. Those rooms did not exist, as if adults with secrets had declared them out of bounds. So I just sat downstairs, in that old, dead house, the wind chilling my neck. They had gone, and the silence bled into everything. I'm sure she'd love to see me now, tucked into this gloomy alcove in a grubby little pub, just me, a flickering TV, some guy pretending to be deaf, selling Disney keyrings that glow in the dark. The front door of the pub has a hole in it, as if someone has tried to kick it down, and through the flapping clear plastic I can see some kids hanging around in the car park, smoking and doing tricks on an old BMX. I told you so. She wouldn't say it out loud, she had too much class for that, but it would be there on her face, the almost imperceptible raising of an eyebrow, the foreshadowing of a smile. Anna always thought I was a bit rough, could never quite shake off the council estate. I remember when I told her my dad used to spend his Saturday afternoons in the betting shop, polite bemusement, that smug little smile, because no one in her family even went to pubs, not even at Christmas, I asked once. No, she said. They might have a glass of sherry after lunch, but that would be it, nothing more. They went bell-ringing instead. It's dark now, and I cannot remember the sun going in. A car revs outside, and headlights sweep around the pub like a prison searchlight. I go back to the bar and order another pint. Heads turn towards me, but I don't make eye contact avoiding the stares, the inscrutable nods. A burly fisherman is perched on a stool, facing towards the door. He's telling a racist joke about a woman having an affair and the plucking of a lone pube, and I remember hearing it once after school in an East London alleyway where people dumped porn mags and empty cans of coke. The regulars laugh at the punchline, but the barmaid is silent, turns away from them. On the wall behind her there are page three pin-ups and framed newspapers from the day after 
Four pound ten, darling, the barmaid says, putting the beer down. My hands are shaking and I fumble around in my wallet, spilling my change out onto the bar. Sorry, I say, cold hands. I know, she says. It's freezing out. Here, let me. She picks up the coins and then, as if I am a frail pensioner, counts out the rest of the money from my open hand. There you go, she says. Four pound ten. Thank you, I say, a little ashamed, and she smiles. She has a kind face, the type you don't often see in places like this.